Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm Chad. I'm Liz. And we are in episode 44, where we will be covering Scott Lynch's Red Seas Under Red Skies, chapters three through chapter five. This is book two of the Gentleman Bastard series. It is. So if you are jumping in and haven't read book one and haven't gone over our our coverage of that book, stop. The hell are you doing? Do not pass go. No. Not collect $200. No money for you. It's time to move on with Red Seas Under Red Skies and leave Lies of Loch Lamore behind. If you are just joining us, just a reminder of our spoiler policy. Mm. Chad has not read these books. No. I have. So we are not going to be spoiling anything past Chapter 5 of Red Seas Under Red Skies. That is correct. And what are we reading next time? Next up is going to be Chapters 6 and 7. There are no reminiscences mm-hmm. after that. So there's going to be a, a little reminiscence between five and six, and then chapter six, chapter seven, two long chapters. Gotcha. Right. Fantastic. So, but the, for the purposes of this episode, no spoilers past chapter five. We can't speak for other series. No. We'll be spoiling those with reckless abandon. Whatever the hell we want to. You've been warned. <laughs> But not really, because if we tell you what happens at the end of Sixth Sense, you'll be like, whatever. You'll catch on. If you're joining us recently, you should also know that we overuse the phrase moral compass. (laughs) We tell a lot of dick jokes as the night gets later and later. And our favorite word is asphalt. Asphalt. Just say it a couple of times. Asphalt. Though I don't know, Piccadillo might be creeping up. Yeah, I learned it's peccadillo. Peccadillo. That's even better. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm good. (laughs) Let's talk about chapter three. Let's talk about chapter three. So it's called Warm Hospitality. And I have a confession to make. Okay. I have read this book three times. This is my fourth time. Mm -hmm. I just got the pun. (laughs) called warm hospitality because they're in a hot room yeah they throw them in the hot box (laughs) well you're reading kind of a forward direction you're not going back and (sighs) checking that i i until recently never even paid any attention to titles at all so i would forgive you for not catching that pun just got it it's a good one so at the end of chapter two is where jean and Locke are sort of cornered uh, by one of the agents of the Archon and brought to this tower. And they don't, at the time, they don't know who it is, but they just know that they're getting on a boat and they're going to be brought to see somebody. And in this chapter, we find out who it is. But we start out with Jean and Locke sitting in a very small room, uh, apparently over a fire. I don't know. Like the, the room is somehow artificially heated up. Yeah, they're doing some hot yoga. Yes, right. Some Bikram. Which I've heard is miserable or amazing, depending on who you talk to. Depending on, yeah, yeah, that's right. Depending on who you talk to. But they're not enjoying the hot yoga. No. No, they're like, we get it. Let us out. 
You've made your point. You're sadistic. That's your point, right? What's the fucking point? Why are we, we here? We don't have enough hipster cred to enjoy this. Yes, come on now. Did we tell you we were vegans ahead of time? Why Just are you doing this to us? Just want to go get a soy latte. <laughs> My man bun is wilting. Anyway, so yeah, that's pretty much what happens in part one of this chapter. And in part two, we take, you know, kind of a step back an hour or two into kind of how they got there. We get a very, very detailed description of the uh, Mon Magisteria, which is the building that this uh, gentleman lives in, and all the ways in which it's, you know, this impregnable military fortress that they've they've walked up to, and who the guards are and what they look like and all that stuff. Ultimately, we find out that they are going to be presented to Stragos, the Archon, who is essentially the military dictator of Talverar. Tal Talverar. Talverar. Thank you. Talverar, yes. Yeah, okay. So he's got a huge phallic waterfall as a front door. Yeah. So I, how could he not be kind of a prick? <laughs> Good point. Hadn't put that together, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, and his entrance is like he creates a tunnel through and they walk through the tunnel. Penetrates the waterfall. He penetrates the waterfall. He he creates a moist tunnel. <laughs> so, you know, it's highly vaginal. A lot of symbolism there, you guys. Probably not intentional. <laughs> not symbolism. sort of symbolism. Probably not symbolism to anyone but us, but. <laughs> it just reminds me of Maude Lebowski and the Big Lebowski. <laughs> so what did you think of the, the two cities we've seen so far? Com, you know, comparison-wise. So that so we saw one little podunk little city. Oh, I'm sorry, you're talking about... I guess about, I meant Camor as oh, compared gotcha. to Telvarar. Well, you can definitely get a different a different sense of the two cultures, and Telvarar seems more civilized, I think. Camor is more like New York in the 1970s, with like, or at least what people pictured it as. It's just sort of like chaos you know and crime everywhere and uh you know the rich get you know very rich and the poor you know huddle over top of uh drums filled with you know newspapers on fire like it's just it's a a very chaotic very cruel place talvarar doesn't seem to quite have that it definitely has its upper class and it definitely has its cruelty but not nearly to the same degree. You know, there are sort of like outdoor places with shelters where poor people can sleep. Executions are outlawed. So it seems to be, you know, a, a much more civilized place. And there's definitely a distinct culture between the two. Yeah, I think it's interesting to compare the two because we see Camor still operating under the old system of government with a duke. And it's yeah. mentioned in this section that Telvarar did away with dukes hundreds of years ago, and they're now operating under the rule of this priori council. And the Archon is the war leader, I guess, for better, yeah, you know, general, whatever. Yeah. He'd only to be called up, you know, in times of war. Right. Uh, but of course, when you give somebody an army, they don't always like to give it up. And so there's this, you know, flaw in their political system. But it does seem slightly more along the scale of of a republic as opposed to a dictatorship? 
I agree. And I think it's interesting to compare the two because here we have this this dukedom, this sort of old school one guy in power structure yeah. versus this more of a more of a republic type structure. And I think it's that's a deliberate contrast. Yeah. You know, in Camorra, you have this corruption that is completely out in the open. Yeah. It's all but acknowledged by the Duke himself. And versus, sure, there's corruption in Telvarar, and we have Requin, who's sort of the, he's not really the Capa Barsavi of the joint, but he's sort of a, a posh, like, spiffed up Capa Barsavi, I he's think. He's kind of an organized crime figure right. of a sort. He, you know, it's, it's not as... Um, it's not as gritty and direct as Capa Barsavi, but he still runs sort of an underground army, for lack of a better word. Right, exactly. But again, it's nothing like the corruption in Camor. No, yeah. The, the level of organization that the criminals had in Camor. Nothing like that. So I just think it's interesting to contrast the two. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the cruelty, too. Uh, I mean, Camor right. is horrifically cruel. Right. Just a terrible, terrible place. And so, what did you think of um, Stannis slash Strago? <laughs> I had not thought of that comparison. Oh, he is so Stannis. But that's a good comparison. Mm-hmm. That is a good comparison. He's more like the Stannis on the TV show. Right. And, and less like Stannis from the books. Well, in my brain casting, that's who That's a he good is, one. For sure. That's a good one, Stephen Delane. A little, a little younger than the actual character, but would definitely pull it off. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. I don't know why this little subtle detail stood out to me, but that he's a military leader, and he actually has a flat top. <laughs> Just seems slightly anachronistic. Uh, it's a little on the nose. Yeah. But That's all right. We'll uh, let it go. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'll look the other way. I, we've moved on from big brown ladies. You have. <laughs> I just, I just want to see it. <laughs> I just, I just personally want to see it myself. That's all. I just need more description or pictures. The big round lady. <laughs> anyway, so we have Jean and Locke who. Who Strago sends him one, you know, one of his uh, lieutenants, the sword prefect, out to say, "Gentlemen, so sorry, <laughs> all all a mix up. We had our paperwork in the wrong file folder, and we thought we were supposed to punish and torture you. Really, we were supposed to invite you in and tell you how wonderful we think you are. So sorry for the mix up." And he brings him into uh, Stragos's office. And, um, of course, they are absolutely horridly parched because they've been, you know, sitting in this uh, hot box for hours. Apparently, it was not moist inside of the hot box. So Chad keeps giving me this really funny look every time he says hot box. It was a very dry box. (laughs) And so they were thirsty. Listen, you make of it what you will. I'm just telling you what happened. These are simply the facts. I just think people listening need to know about your facial expressions. They're in this dry box, and they get out of it, and they're parched. The the Archon gives them, who is Stragos? I'll use both of those interchangeably. I hope it doesn't confuse anybody. Mm -hmm. Who 
gives them this pear uh, cider, which he says, hey, I'm going to take a sip of this first. It's tradition, so we have trust amongst us. And then he gives it to him. They chug it down, and he says, by the way, I've poisoned you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Such a Stannis thing to do. You think so? Yeah. I mean, Melisandre would put him up to it, but he would totally do it. Mm, if Melisandre told him to do it, maybe. But yeah, I would say that's not a very Stannis thing to do, but that's okay. So at this point, Strago says, hey, now that I... <laughs> Shall I tell them about the faces that you're making? <laughs> no? I'll just move forward. I'll just move forward with the rest of the podcast. How long were you holding that face waiting for me to look at you? <laughs> oh, my cheeks are getting dry. <laughs> we are going to have a hard time getting through this podcast. We are deep into the sillies at a bad, bad spot. You know what I loved about this chapter? Tell me, please help me. Like <laughs> the steampunk flavor. It's very steampunk flavor. Right? We've got a whole clockwork river. Yeah. In- insects and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, clockwork butterflies. Right? Definitely a little more of the steampunk vibe coming from Telverar. Yeah, you know, it's I funny. It. You said Stannis. You know who I took this guy as? The wizard from The Wizard of Oz. Like the old-timey movie, Wizard of Oz? No, not like the, the wizard silly. With like the, okay. Uh, but not so much in his personality, but just in like the land that he inhabits. Oh, okay. He's behind the scenes with all of right. his mechanical you know, stuff. And more about what happens in Chapter 5. But anyway. Yeah, anyway, moving on with this chapter. Gotcha. So in Part 4, this is where he tells uh, John and Locke that he's got them by the balls and that he's basically going to use them for some undetermined task at a later date. He's like, you and my bitches now. Yep, and then Jean and Locke attempt to kind of push back, and they're like, who the fuck do you think you are, you know? You know, if we're going to die anyway, what's to stop us from, you know, killing you or doing this or doing that? And he says, well, the Bonds Mages gave me over to you, told me everything about you, and uh, also told me that the best way to manipulate you was to have was to torture one of you while the other one watched. So if you do anything to me, Locke, I'll torture Jean. Jean does anything, I'll torture Locke. And they both kind of shut up at that. Because he's pretty much got them. Yeah. You know, the Bonds Magi are continually messing with them, and now we kind of know that they're going to do more than just do some kind of weird, freaky puppet master thing mm. to freak them out. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's pretty diabolical what they've done, so it makes you wonder what's what else has been going on in the background that we don't know about. Yeah, this is sort of the other shoe, the why the Bonds and Magi were willing to let them live, because they knew they were going to turn them over to this asshole. So here's the other question for you. Do you think he really poisoned them? Well, you can ask me that, but I've read the book a couple of times. So Mm. what do you think? Don't squint your eyes at me. I'm not giving anything away. (laughs) I tried. My attempt was... You saw right through my attempt. Uh, so I've thought about it, and I have to say, yes, I think he did. I think he did poison them. My favorite part of this chapter is when Locke turns around and says, I want you to remember. Yeah. Those, yeah. That I offered to let this go. I offered to walk away. 
You know, here he is completely and totally over the barrel. This guy has them. Yep. Like you said, by the balls. Mm -hmm. And Locke is like, it's your last chance, Strakos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just when it's all just said, the balls on that character know, is right? great. When it's all said and done, just want you to remember, I tried to give you an out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the equivalent of like, you've got the guy on the ground, he's bleeding, he, both arms are broken, and he's looking at you and he says, you know, you're holding his head down, you're about to punch him, and he says, if you let me go now, I won't kick your ass. <laughs> I also really love the line Locke and Jean are, are talking and Locke is apologizing for bringing them to this wretched place. And, and Jean says, you know what? We were both eager to hop in bed with the wench. It's just shit luck that she turned out to have the clap. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. After this, they get dropped back off into town. You know, they, they, uh, they drive by in their limousine. They open the doors and shove them out, and they roll around on the sidewalk for a little while. And they sit, and they start kind of comparing their options. And Jean reminds Locke that there were a few things that they did not seem to know. They didn't know about chains. You know, they didn't, you know, it's a couple of details that are missing. So that means the Bonja Magi don't know everything. They can't read minds. They can't read minds. So this yep. is one thing, you know, we've talked a lot about the Bonds Magi and what can they do and what they can they cannot do. And it seemed like they could do pretty much anything. Yeah. So it's nice to point out that there is something that it seems like they can't do. Yeah, correct. So we move on to a reminiscence. And this one is called the Lady of the Glass Pylon. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so essentially this is where they make a visit to an artificer named Azura Gallardine. Gallardine. There you go. She is the lady who built Requin's vault. That's right. So they are there to ostensibly pump her for information Correct. about Requin's vault. Yes. So Jean goes up to her glass tower uh, and he brings her a very, very expensive pair Ostrachalon brandy, you know, concoction in this small little thing because he knows that's something that's very important to her. It's also super expensive and something that would stand out. He walks into her and says, uh, I'd like to you to tell me how to get into Requin's vault. And she's like, are you insane? <laughs> and then proceeds to tell the tale about how Solendry became the major domo. Major Domo. And, um, and about when the killings began. Yes, yeah, so we learn that Requin is pretty much a hardcore badass. Yeah. You shouldn't make him angry. No. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. No. And don't mess with his woman. At least not her boobs. Right? You mess with her boobs. Don't mess with her boobs. He liked that boob. <laughs> that was his favorite boob. <laughs> So Jean approaches this. So look, we all know that the left one is slightly larger than the right one. That's only in some people, Chad. Oh, okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Don't be left boobist. <laughs> so Jean approaches this artificer, and I think we have mentioned a little bit, but we talk a little more about how Telvarar is the city of artifice. That's mm -hmm. its specialty. Yeah. You know, Kamor has crime and good food. Telvarar has 
the artificers. Yes. And Azura Gallardine is the best of the best, and she makes locks and bolts. So Jean approaches her and tries to pump her for information about this vault. We already know that it's impenetrable. We know there's no back door access. Into the box. I don't care what you've heard. <laughs> You're not There's getting no rear entry. No, it's, it's not, not going to happen. It's not happening. All these guys think they can wait till Salandri's not looking, tunnel their way back there. Uh, yeah, just it's all elder glass under there. There's no getting in. You're not going to accidentally find your You're way not into it. Accidentally find a back door under. It's not going to happen. So they're talking to the lady who made the locks on the vault. Yeah, and as you said, summarily they're rejected. However, it's interesting at the very end, Jean says, that's okay. I was just planting a seed anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, how she escorts him from her building is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's pretty funny. Come over here. Do you see what this town looks like? Stand in that spot on the floor right there. Stand right over top of this X. (laughs) Now, have you ever heard of a trap door? (laughs) Uh, <laughs> so so Azura Gallardine has it wants no parts of betraying Requin because no uh, anyone who has done that before has been horribly and brutally killed yeah she does not want to cross him we find out also that he and Salandri have a, a, apparently a very real and passionate relationship yes correct I thought it was interesting that just like we have the black alchemist we also have something called the black hands so they are sort of the evil version of the artificers. So they make devices for ill purposes, you know, like clockwork vibrating wands and voting machines. <laughs> Good one. Thank you. So Jean gets dumped out of the tower and he lands at a beer cellar. I thought it was interesting that when he falls down, one of his hatchets sort of slips and falls out on the street in front of this beer vendor and then you know jean kind of shoves it back up his his sleeve and and rolls on don't know if that's going to be significant but i suspect it will be Mm -hmm. and then we're into chapter four chapter four is called blind alliances that's right so in this chapter jean and Locke start out by going to see some alchemists they've been told they've been poisoned and they're start doing research on what this poison could have been. Is there any antidote? We find out that bazoars are not real in this universe. There aren't any dragons, so there aren't any bazoars. I have never even heard of a bazoar. It's like a mythical stone that's supposed to counteract all poisons. Oh, okay. So they're definitely poisoned. And there's jack all they can do about it. Yeah, because she says essentially that when I list out the things that could potentially cause what you're explaining to me, the antidote for one will make the other one kill you faster. And Locke says, this is the second time I've been poisoned for coercive purposes. (laughs) (laughs) The alchemist they're talking to also tells them that there's one possible solution to their problem, but it's very expensive. Highly expensive. She says that she's... She has reason to believe that the bonds made of Carthane are able to purge poisons from bodies. So, you know, there's always that option. There's always that. For those of you who are not being hunted by the bonds magi of Carthane. <laughs> Poor bastards. Poor bastards. So then they go back to the Sin Spire and they're, uh, they step in during the cage spectacle, oh. which is just a, uh, a hipster dude with 
two baseball mitts trying to fight off a bunch of giant wasps. This is truly horrifying. I think giant wasps, to me, is worse than giant spiders. I'm equally afraid of both regular size wasps and spiders, Mm -hmm. but giant wasps scare me more than giant spiders. I have distinct memories of giant wasps as a children, as a child, as children. (laughs) I used to be several children. This is getting real weird. I was born as several small children. (laughs) And then we would all go for supper. (laughs) Now, when I I was a child and I grew up in Georgia, we had, I forget exactly what they're called, like a wood hornet, I think, or something like that. They're these hornets that are not actually aggressive, but they're enormous. I'm already tensing up. Do you see my shoulders? I see your shoulders are right up by your ears. They're like three inches long. Oh, what? Yeah. Oh, they're enormous. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And they would fly around, and they would like they look like helicopters flying across the lawn. They were huge. Three inches. Yeah, at least at least three inches. Goodness. So they were enormous, and I was terrified of them as a child, as you would would be. be. They are actually called wood bees, I think. Nice. I just smacked myself in the face with a microphone. <laughs> All right, let's move forward with this. So Locke and John go back to the Sins Buyer, and they go in, and there's a cage match going on. People are betting it. Cage match. This this poor Who young would bet on the guy. They bet on the guy. I know, and that's stupid. It doesn't make a lick of sense. You know, it's very interesting to see Locke's character arc start to develop and this sensitivity yeah. to, and we see it even more in the next chapter, the reminiscence, mm-hmm. his sensitivity to people being harmed, especially people who are powerless over their situation, yeah. being harmed. Just interesting to see that his experiences toward the end of the last book have kind of changed his personality a little. You know, we went from this little boy who survived the black whisper plague and probably was surrounded by dead bodies and pain and suffering and watched his friends being hung. And all of a sudden he's developing sort of a conscience about the way he manipulates people a little bit and more of a tender heart for people who are suffering around him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I picked up on that as well. So they're sitting down there and they're betting on the cage match when the major domo comes up and puts a, clockwork hand on his shoulder and summons him major domo major domo to see uh requin will you start introducing me as your major domo absolutely why haven't we done that before just haven't thought i basically of it. am your major domo when you think about it oh yeah i, I think about manage, it all the time i manage your household you do you're right i manage the hell out of this household it wouldn't run nearly as smoothly without you where's my knife hand <laughs> It would run a little more smoothly if I had a knife hand. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Are you willing to let go of the left hand in order to? Eh, probably not. All right. Okay. I mean, I just, you have to be clear about these things. <laughs> so we see, get to see Locke at his manipulating best. I, I really liked the scene with Locke and Salandri in the elevator. Salandri comes down to fetch him up because Requin wants to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And they get into this teeny little she calls it a climbing closet but i guess it's some sort of elevator where they they're standing you know face to face they can barely both fit 
he says that Jean wouldn't have fit in there with her. It's that small of a yeah. compartment. And it's like that elevator in the hotel in Paris we were in. That was a tiny elevator. Yeah. This is probably even tinier. This is like the Barbie Dreamhouse elevator, <laughs> if you can picture that. Like, there's not even room for two Barbies in it. Yeah, and you just point. pull on a cord. There's probably someone yanking a cord. If you pull too hard, it flies right up through the roof. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so Locke is crammed in this tiny box with this woman who hates him and has a knife hand. Okay. Her knife hand is resting on his lower back. And he's like, hmm, how can I work this to my, to my yeah. advantage? I feel as though you don't like me. So he starts talking. And it's just so interesting to see him slip through the cracks and really come up with some very like not anything i would have thought of to say Mm -hmm. and he he starts by asking what can he do to improve her opinion of him and she's like nothing you dick i don't like you i don't trust you you're obviously untrustworthy yeah i just kind of got him saying look i'm not like other guys like that's just kind of the vibe i got right but in the end he says I used to think less of him, speaking of Requin, before I found out he had the courage to really love you. And I think you're the bravest woman I ever met. And I'm like, damn, boy. We'll see if it Tell plays a girl it. she's brave. I'm just saying. Tip. Good to know. Single guys. Pro tip. I like it. Don't tell her she's hot. I mean, you can tell her she's hot too, but tell her she's brave. So you're That's giving it. the boys the, a sure tip? forever. <clears throat> see what you did there okay so now we have an audience with requin still want to call him rakeen and uh requin tells uh Locke all about all the different things that he's learned about them and then he slips in and by the way i know that you've met with the archon and then you know Locke has to sort of think on his feet and he says uh yeah i met with him uh, he's my secret employer. I love this brilliance. Just the lie that he comes up with and how neatly it fit into what Requin was suspecting anyway. And it just played into the politics of the situation so beautifully. And it all really worked out really well for Locke. It's another sort of crooked warden kind of moment. Right. Yeah. And that's interesting that you say that because directly after this, we see Locke go downstairs and say a prayer over the boy who's has now been killed by the wasps. Yeah, absolutely. And that move was very moving for me that he walks over and he's first, he's had this sort of niggling of conscience. That's unusual for his character as he's feeling a little bit of misgiving about the way he is manipulating Salandri. Yeah. And then he has this moment with Requin where he's able to get out of yet another jam. And then he goes down and he sees the boy finally kind of dying. Cause he's been killed by all of these wasps. Yeah. Um, And he finds out that he was some sort of just landless eighth son of a minor noble who was in debt. And he promised Requin he'd work off his debt. And Requin decided this is how he was going to do it. He was going to get in a cage match with a bunch of wasps. And everybody's kind of jeering him as he's dying. And he goes over and pretends like he's throwing, wants to just throw his drink on him in derision. Instead, he throws his drink and says, this is a glass poured out for this Mm -hmm. guy. And he prays for him. Mm -hmm. And it's just really moving. Yeah. The other thing I noted in this uh, prior to them coming down when they were still in the cage with Requin is that Requin immediately knows that he met with the Archon. And the reason why he knows is because the guards that 
the Archon thinks are loyal to him are actually loyal to Requin. Yeah. Which tells me that... Or at least one of them. Yeah, at least one of them, correct. Which tells me that there might potentially be some issues with loyalty amongst the members of the Archon's cadre. So something to look for. That is a good point. All right. And then, so after the Wasp game and, and Locke saying his prayer for the boy, uh, they leave the Sinspire and Locke and Jean are kind of talking about their meeting and sort of comparing notes when they stumble across two beggars who attack them. And, you know, they go through their little fight and they're about to, uh, or they think they're about to interrogate the one surviving beggar when the female agent of the Archon shows up again and shoots the beggar in the chest, who it turns out was actually about to stab Jean with a poison blade. And we find out who she is, and her name is Moraine. And she says that uh, it's time for the Archon to see you again. And it's like, it's, you know, like, these guys don't get a break. And now they... She wa- he wants to see them about a job. And so that's the end of the chapter. So I love the running gag in this about John hating footboxers. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was, that always makes me chuckle. Yeah, it was interesting to me that the two of them, like neither John or Locke quite realized what was going on. And I feel like if they were in Camor, they would not have they would not have fallen for that. They would have seen through that. But as they're in a different culture, which is not as cruel and dangerous and filled with trickery, or at least doesn't seem to be, is this a sign that some of their street senses are dulling a little bit? Well, I don't know. And it's interesting because we also just had the interaction, the chain of interactions that we just talked about where his conscience flares up over manipulating Salandri his prayer for the boy who's killed by the wasps. And then right as before he gets attacked, the beggar asks for a copper and he is going to get ready to give her much more than that. Yeah. And it says he was so distracted by his own generosity that he didn't notice that she was actually not a beggar and was going to kill him. Yeah. Um, So that was very interesting. And I think it all ties together. No, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it in that that way, but no, I like that. So now we get. So now we go into the next reminiscence called the Amusement War, and so this is where uh, Locke goes to a small island called uh, Salon Corbeau, where he wants to buy some highly specialized chairs, and while he's there waiting for the chairs, he witnesses this tradition this game this thing that they do on this island one of the things that makes it famous uh and it's called the amusement war and it's essentially this twisted version of chess human chess slash gladiatorial pit where although people are not executed they're essentially humiliated and uh, everything short of execution is done to them uh and they just prey on these poor people and it's a pretty horrific thing and along the lines of what we've been talking about with Jean and his developing conscience, he just can't stand it. He really cannot deal with this place, and he wants to burn it down. Yeah, it's a nice continuation of the character arc that we've been talking about with Locke in that 
So Salon Corbeau is, it's not an island necessarily. It's mm. a little villa in the middle of nowhere. Oh, it's okay. mm-hmm. in the middle of basically desert. So it's far oh, enough, yeah. it's yeah, far yeah. enough away from all of the other city states that nobody's controlling it. But it's not large enough to actually be a town. It's basically this rich lady's villa. Then all these rich people have come to and then a, t- a little mini village of artisans has grown up around it to serve the rich people. And I think it's very interesting that as Locke is watching the amusement war, he starts to struggle with the thorn of Camor. And he says that he almost thinks of it as a separate entity. You know, it used to be just kind of a joke between him and his friends. Yeah. But as he's there and he's struggling with the injustice that he's seeing he says that he can feel the thorn saying let me out let me destroy these people yeah i I just he just wants to right this wrong Mm -hmm. well and he talks about the two sort of tenants isn't the right word there's a word he uses i don't remember what it is mandates the two mandates thank you for the the priest of the crooked ward and the, the priest of the 13th. The first one being that thieves must prosper, but the second one being that the rich must remember, you know, and that th- the agents of the 13th job is not just to support the thieves, but also to let the rich people know that they can't just step on the poor. So this really flies in the face of what he's grown up to believe. So at the end of the last book, we see Locke and John struggling to find purpose. They were raised, quote, to be nothing less than a ballista bolt through the heart of the secret peace in Camor. And they've taken that secret peace out pretty much. Yeah. So now they're just kind of sailing away with most of their gang gone and not really a purpose in life anymore. Yeah. And this is a purpose that they've been raised since childhood to accomplish. So I see this arc that Locke is going through as him finding his purpose again and finding his purpose as a priest of the unnamed 13th. That's a good point because they said, you know, early in this book, we need to find a game. We need to find a game. And it's sort of like they're moving forward doing what they've always done just because that's kind of what they know. That's kind of where they thrive. But you're right, with no sort of no real purpose at any point. And so this is the first sort of you know call back to that idea of now we do have some sort of moral calling. And we see a continuation of a flashback that we began in the last book when Locke and Chains are walking back after Locke's first meeting with Kappa Barsabi, Mm -hmm. when Chains is telling him about these mandates, the two mandates of the priest of the 13th. And Chains is saying that, you know, Barsabi takes care of his people with the secret peace. He takes care of his thieves. Less of them get hung. They're definitely prospering. But he's not taking care of the rich remembering. And that's my job, is to make sure that the rich remember that their stuff can get stolen. Bad things can happen to them, too, just like it happens to anybody else. Mm -hmm. So he says, you know, as long as I'm taking care of that part, Barsavi can take care of the other part. Yeah. So it's interesting to see Locke sort of start to remember that as he's in Salon Corbeau watching the rich. Basically, this is a bunch of rich people with no constraints. 
Yeah. They have these are not politicians who have to worry about what people think of them. They have nothing but time and money, and it's the absolute worst of humanity that that you're seeing here. Yeah, absolutely. And Locke is uncharacteristically out of character and distracted from his mission, and he goes day after day to watch this happen, and he's just seething. And it's interesting that it's it's not something he would have done in the past no, to break right. character for this. So it's definitely yeah. something going on with him yeah for sure absolutely so now we get to chapter five yep and so chapter five is essentially where the archon finally tells them what he wants them to do but of course he can't just tell them he has to be overly elaborate about it but that's sort of what the chapter is in a summary so in part one we we continue where where chapter four left off with uh Locke and Moraine, uh, Moraine walking Locke and John back into the tower again to go meet Stragos. And he drops them off. And as she is leaving, he refers to them as Master Costa and uh, De Ferreira. And then Locke realizes, hey, wait a minute, you haven't told her who we are. And so he's searching for sort of an avenue of weakness there. It's this really, really, really tense meeting with both of them essentially threatening each other multiple times. But then eventually they take their their little meeting into the garden where they get into this sort of artificial river that he's created with all these artificial plants and all these wondrous things that he wants to show them that he's done through artificing. But as a part of that, he tells them what he wants them to do which is essentially that he wants them to go out and create a war. He wants them to go out and be pirates and create a pirate rebellion and uprising because the last one was so helpful, but gosh darn it, there's no more pirates left, and they need some sort of enemy so he can get power. Shocker. Are you shocked that you found out that that's what he was after? No, not even slightly. No, what... What was interesting and and the part of the whole thing that was interesting to me and was sort of news was sort of what he kind of reveals as more of his greater purpose. He says that you're not the only one who hates the Bonds Magi of Carthane, you know, and they rule our lives in more of a way than they even realize that they do. He says, but we sit here and tell Varar at the seat of the best artificers and alchemists in the world and we can you know if we are able we can to bring enough power to bear in this location we can create you know a a set of skills that will rival or even destroy the bonds magi of carthane that that is this guy's ultimate goal you know to which Locke says if you'd have just told me that you could have just hired me but again sort of like the gray king i don't you know, if you had just told me you needed the money, he said, I would have given it to you. I don't buy that. But I thought that was interesting, that his real purpose is to destroy the bonds of Magi of Carthane and to get their yoke off of the rest of the world. At least that's what he tells Locke and Jean. And I believe it. And this is why Stragos really reminds me of Stannis, because he's got just this inflated ego this convoluted idea that 
I'm the only one who can save the world. Yeah. There's this big, horrible thing going on. There's these big, mean bonds, Magi, that aren't letting humanity reach its potential. And in order for them to be defeated, I have to become an all-powerful military dictator. Absolutely. That's the only way to save. It's, it's for only humanity. Way it's, gonna it's, not, it's not about it's me. It's for your good, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so that's why I just get such a Stannis vibe from him. That's it's like, point. I yeah. have to be the king because otherwise, you know, none of the rest of these peons are going to be able to do anything about this. Right. Nobody do has. Do you the have vision. a flaming sword? That's right. Because I have a flaming sword. Nobody has the will to do what I know must be done. So my favorite part of this was at, right after he gives this grandiose speech about, you know, humanity not reaching its potential and how blah, blah, blah. And, and Locke goes, Maxillon, darling. I had no idea you could smolder. Take me now. (laughs) (laughs) Jean will look the other way. You know, and uh, and he's not daunted. He's like, "Will you shut up with your foolishness and listen to me?" Right. But you know, you can't. You just can't trust a guy who has to poison you to to get you. To do what he wants. Not only that, but Locke and Jean realize as part of this conversation too when he starts saying, I'll pay you gobs of money to do it. And they recognize that he's trying to pull a con on them that not one, not only is he not going to pay them, but that's that's the kiss of death. That just means that as soon as they do whatever he wants, he's going to off them. Right. Locke calls this the classic fuck the agent scenario. And yeah. he realizes that. Yeah. There's no way they can't just trust Stragos. No. To not deliver. At not at all. Yeah. Not only not to deliver, but that he's he's gonna use him for his purpose and then conveniently kill them, not give them their antidote, wh- whatever it is. So they are, you know, just like when uh, Locke had to pretend to be the the Grey King and stand in front of Barsavi and get put into a situation that was practically a death warrant they're in the same situation here except it's a more drawn out sort of thing the other thing that was interesting to me is he says they've got 62 to 65 days is about the longest they can go without their antidote where he wants them to go is two to three weeks away by boat so they would essentially have to travel by boat three weeks out be there for three weeks turn around and come three weeks back, take their antidote. And like, that just doesn't eat, you know, and they highlight that in the conversation, but it, it just doesn't make sense on so many levels. It doesn't make sense. This mission that he wants them to do. Nobody ever said Stannis was the smartest. No, for sure. Very good at grammar. Very good. But otherwise, you know, (laughs) So, so is this the chapter two where they mention the chairs, that so, it's time for the chairs? Uh, it was the end of chapter four, but we never find out what the chairs are for. So yeah, we should probably mention that while Locke was at Salon Corbeau, what yeah. he was doing was commissioning a very particular suite of chairs. Yes. That had a unspecified but very special weird mechanism something about them and they were made of very light wood yeah exactly they were made to not specifically not to be durable 
And can we say that, can we talk about the, the chair maker and his family and how like ridiculously over the top cute they were? Oh yeah. They yeah literally was... carry kittens in their pockets. Yeah. The kittens made me sad. That did make me I sad. I don't want to talk about the kittens. Yeah. But, um, so anyway, that's just worth mentioning that at some point this very expensive, very interesting and odd set of chairs is going to be given to Requin as some sort of part of the scheme. Correct. Yep. I think we covered it all. It's difficult to cover a book that this that is this plot heavy without just kind of recounting or re- basically reading it. But I think we got all the main points of interest. Listeners chime in if you think there's anything we missed that's going to be important later on. Yeah, this is a I think this is why this book is a little more difficult to do in a book club because it is so plot heavy, but we we're starting I feel like to get more of a little bit of mystery and where we can start to make some guesses as to what's going to happen, but I feel like these are not the kinds of books where the clues are laid out ahead of time. You know, if you if you go back and you look at A Song of Ice and Fire, King Killer, you can oftentimes see through subtext and metatext and random clues that are dropped in chapter seven that, you know, come back in chapter 49. Like, but you don't see as much of that in these books, or at least I don't feel like it's there. I don't know. So do you have predictions, though? I do. I do have a couple predictions. So my first prediction is that Sabatha is not in this book. <laughs> She's not in this book. Maybe she shows up in the next book. I don't know. But she's not in this one. So that's my first prediction. My second prediction. So, okay, so wait a minute. There is something we didn't talk about. There's one very important thing we didn't talk about. Okay. And that was the very end of Chapter 5. And so the very end of Chapter 5, Locke and Jean go away, and we have uh, Stragos and Moraine sitting there kind of watching them walk away. Mm-hmm. And Moraine says, may I report to my masters that the plan is underway? Oh, yeah, that's important. And I'm like, okay, so she doesn't work for Stragos. She works for some other third party. And then he says, uh, no one is ready for the consequences. It'll be more blood than anyone has seen in 200 years. And he says, um, yes, you can go. Send my regards and my prayers that we might prosper together. So that leads me to believe this is some sort of force that Stragos is intimidated by. That it's not as simple as, you know, he's the Archon, he's the prime military leader of of one of the major city-states in this region. Who would he have to be afraid of other than the Bonds Magi? But it's not the Bonds Magi. It's a, some third group. Right, because he mentions the Bonds Magi in that conversation. As an other. As, as an them. other. Yeah, correct. So I have a guess. What's as to guess? who they are. I'm not I'm not super confident about it, but I'm gonna take a stab. I think Moraine's masters that she is speaking about is the church of the Lord of Coins, the the God Oh the Lord of Commerce. The Lord of Commerce. Hmm. That's what I think. Okay. I don't have another I, I don't have another sort of outside group that I can that I can lean on. But apparently, I mean, it seems obvious to me that these people are gearing towards war 
and they're looking at war as being something that they can prosper from. Mm-hmm. And we know that Stragos is very concerned with money because he wants to be able to, he needs to be able to finance the war. So that's my prediction. Good predictions. We'll see. We'll see. All right. So are you ready for listener interactions? Yes. All right. So we have a handful here. So I want to welcome some of our recent additions to the Duke and Duchess podcast group. So welcome to the following people. Tina Kinnison, Justin Berger, Eric Algeyer. I hope I said that correctly. If I didn't, let us know. Uh, Tiffany Rose Perry, Richard Perry, Chris Dixon, Brandon Tinney, Liam Pollard, and Iris Manhold. So welcome to new members of our podcast group on Facebook. And also we've got some interactions here from Theo. Theo listening to the last podcast said, I'm 25 minutes in and I just I realized I totally didn't get that Telverar was an island. So he says, told you I had issues with description. Dob Bobalina from the last episode says, I think Jean is out. I think he's sick of Locke's bullshit, doesn't want to deal with the Bonds Magi, and like Bruce Dickinson, he's going to run for the hills. He's dust. He's gone. All right. That's his one. Good prediction, prediction there, yep. too. So Dob Bobalina also says, I like Lynch's dialogue, particularly the insults, and this was in... Um, the reminiscence where he goes to see the artificer it says, "Go back to pleasuring your cattle, you soft dick curl." Oh, we didn't even talk about the skull girl. The skull I loved girl, yeah. it. She was funny, yeah. Uh, but I don't get his city and landscapes. Is Talbarar some kind of like uh, palm Jumarai, that artificial palm-shaped island in Dubai? Also, the elder glass towers kind of make me think of the tower from Crawl. Remember Crawl? <laughs> And oh, we remember crawl. We remember the crawl and the striped pants and the mullets. Yes, <laughs> we remember the crawl. Da Babalina and Theo got into a description about the merits of the movie Crawl. I have no opinion. Crawl versus Dune. Oh, come Who on. Who will win? Uh, well, the, okay. What are we judging it on? Mullets. Well, crawl wins. <laughs> On any other merit, Dune wins. <laughs> I don't know if our relationship can take another Beastmaster versus a Conan. <laughs> so let's not bring up Carl. All right. All let's, right. let's just move on. <laughs> let's just move on. Okay. All right, let's go. So also on Twitter, we have uh, Vimesy74, who says, I just started rereading Lies again with your podcast as an accompaniment. It's a new way of reading for me and one I've grown to love. Now I'll have to read the Rothfuss books again, too. Yes, so do thank it. You. Do it. Do it. Uh, Beanie Z, also on Twitter, at Beanie Z, uh, says, I'm excited to start listening. I read Red Seas last year and still have many thoughts about it, so I'm looking forward to see if you guys feel the same way. Lay those thoughts on Give us. Give it to us. That's right. Jim Albright says, I'm listening at work to the last episode, and I had to pause to talk to a coworker. I unpaused, and the very first words I hear are pickle dildo. <laughs> sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> not sorry. <laughs> Matt Foster says, I highly recommend reading and listening uh, to The Trader's Blade by D.E. Castell. My entire to my entire Twitter family. You'll not be let down. Plus, it's not 
like The Winds of Winter is going to be coming out anytime soon, and he especially recommended uh, this book to you. And then the author, Sebastian de Castell, uh, came on and said, Thanks, Matt, uh, and Joe James, uh, Joe James on actor, uh, did a great job with the narration for the series. Andy Keithley, who also has a podcast, a guitar cast, said, like a barista bolt to the heart was my favorite line from the episode. I <laughs> You weren't going to get away with that one. did it again today. <laughs> I almost did it. And in fact, I pa- that's why I paused before I said it. <laughs> Listen, we've all been wounded by a barista. I, I was about to say it. I was like, like a, and, and Chad Mal's ballista. <laughs> this is behind the scenes, what happens around it's, here. Yeah, this is the stuff you get. This um, is why you need... Barista bolt. The barista bolt. Oh, God, help It's me. like a caramel macchiato to the heart. <laughs> I've had caramel macchiatos on the brain. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Uh, so Christ- oh, I can't. Christopher Metzelplex, who uh, that's not what it says, but that's what I'm going to say, uh, who is at Malign Ant Green on Twitter, said, Hey, D&D Podcast, just started listening, and I really love your show so far. Great banner and chemistry. We should have decent chemistry. I mean, I would hope. We have four children. I would hope, yeah. So I just started listening to episode 31, and I've uh, finished the Three Gentlemen Bastard books, so subscribed. We also got a new iTunes review. Cool. I That's love those. Right, yeah, and it's from Smokey597. It says, five stars, cute couple talking about some pretty cool books. It's fun listening to their opinions. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. So we love your iTunes reviews, and we love your interactions. What we also love is is word of mouth. So if you want to support the podcast and help us out, you can tell your friends, tell people on social media, tell people around the water cooler, pay for a billboard that you want to put up on the side of I-10, something along those lines. Whatever. Whatever. You can find us on the dukeanddutchesspodcast.com. That's our website. On Twitter at the D&D Podcast. On Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. And on Facebook, also look for our podcast group uh, for the at the Duke and Duchess podcast group. Good night, everybody. Good night. Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Caster Quest, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle. Soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find Caster Quest on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network at esopodcast.com.